Well, hello, everyone. I hope you're ready for Acts chapter 7. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you lift them with me as we say, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it's all that I need. And I think the more that we believe that, the healthier, the, the, spirit, the more spiritually healthy we will remain and keep growing. So where, where, do we, where did we leave off? Well, we were introduced to Stephen last week. The church is growing. That's good. But you never know, along with growth comes some problems. Along with a church filled with human beings, there's going to be problems. And so this is just a realistic type of church. And I think we can all gain a lot of, a lot of help from, from learning from them and where they did wrong, where they did right. And so the church is growing. They need to delegate. The apostles need to delegate because they can't do everything. And some of the um, Greek Jews, their, wid their widows were kind of falling through the cracks. And so and they didn't want that to happen. So they wanted to make sure that there were seven deacons who would sit at these tables and as necessary they would distribute the needs to the people and so these seven were picked and Stephen the one that we heard so much about last week because he was well all seven were picked with a resume of they had to be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom and and it just uh, you know along with Stephen's description he was also a man full of God's grace and power but i did notice though that when you are filled with God's spirit you are under under his guidance and you will you will see that he's the one that can produce in you what you can't produce for yourself so he is producing wisdom. That means a real understanding of what God is instructing. Um, you are also able to be, uh, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're also able to be filled with faith. You, you, are, you trust it. Even when you don't understand, you just trust. And you're also filled with power. The Holy Spirit will pr produce a power, a boldness, um, an assurance. And then, of course, you're filled with grace. When the Holy Spirit is running your life, you are filled with grace, even during difficult times involved with difficult people. And of course, grace is such a beautiful word because um, it is Jesus. He, it is unconditional love. It is selflessness it's un it's for those undeserved it's expecting nothing in return it's just a beautiful quality trait and Stephen he was filled with the Holy Spirit which produced wisdom faith power and grace and as as the as leaders would come up or different sects would come like the freedom the synagogue of the freedmen and then we saw the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria and the Providence Sicilia and Cilicia in Asia as you as you watched these people come against Stephen 
They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And then because they could not stand up to him, because, because they were being exposed and they didn't like this and they wanted to be the big shot and they, they, could, not, they could not stump him. And so what did they do? I think, at least from my experience, if people can't get you one way, they will try another way. And here, here they will even use a lie. Um, they will they try to dig up dirt on you, and if they can't, they'll make it up. And here it says that they secretly persuaded some men to come and say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses. And that, that got the people all stirred up and they seized Stephen and, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin and they produced more false witnesses who testified that they heard him speak of Jesus of Nazareth, that he could destroy this temple and change the customs of Moses handed down. You know, it was just, I mean... They, Stephen probably did say that, that Jesus did come to change the customs of Moses because Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. And, but they just twisted it and got it all construed. And, and the more that they falsely accused him, they couldn't help but sit there and look at him. It said that they looked at him intently and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. In Psalm 34, it says, when you look to him, you are radiant. And when they saw that, well, they saw the wisdom and faith and power and grace, they saw those qualities and it was all from God's spirit. It was all from Jesus. And they saw his face and it radiated. And it, ra it radiated a, a peace, a real peace. And so that's where we left off last week. And then, then the high priest asked him, as we start ch chapter 7, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers. Now, in your questions, um, I couldn't help but ask, when you are being falsely accused, your natural instinct is to fight back or defend yourself. Or I think here in Stephen's case, he knows that things don't look too good for him. And so would it, would it involve a panic, a fear? And you see none of that. In fact, he handles it in such a way that he's so composed. And like I said before, I, I am just amazed at what the Holy Spirit is able to do even in the most difficult times. You talk about intense. You talk about pressure. And yet he addresses them with such respect. Brothers and fathers. And now watch how he starts at the beginning. Watch how, watch how he fits in every detail to get them to look back at what they know so well, 
getting them to see all what has transpired to the letter, to get them to see that they can't, they can't deny it. How can you keep ignoring? It's like, it's like he knows this is his last chance, and so he is going to tell the story, and I will read as you follow, as he goes through off from the start, the story of Abraham, when God came to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, making a covenant promise to him that sin would be remedied through someone, through, through this particular line. So here, here, is, here is what Stephen is saying. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country, your people, God said, and go to a land I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to, his, to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. I'm just going to stop a second just to make sure that when you hear the words, but God promised. You know, sometimes things don't look realistic or it doesn't make sense. And yet, when God says, I will, you can count on the fact. And when he promises, I think that is so comforting to be able to be so reassured that God does what he says, even when it, when it certainly doesn't look very probable because Abraham didn't have any children. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Look how God even was telling Abraham what was going to happen during the time of Moses. I mean, you know, God was already preparing Abraham, saying, this is how it's going to work. For 400 years, they're going to be enslaved and mistreated but then he comes back and says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. I mean, they all understood what, circumc what the circumcision meant. It was an outward sign that this was the family. This was going to be the family that God chose to bring the Savior through. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God 
was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. Now, again, that didn't happen overnight. I mean, it's easy to read those verses, you know, quickly. And, but in the course of years, I mean, he was 17 when they, when they sold him, when the brothers sold him. And then you think of how many years later when he finally was second to Pharaoh. But I mean, you think of all the unjust treatment, all what he went through. You see, I think sometimes we forget that God uses suffering in such ways. You know, like Joseph himself said in Genesis 50 verse 20, what man meant for evil, God means for good. And God definitely can use difficult times in which you can clearly see he did. In the key line, and this is what you can claim as well as I can claim, but God was with him. And we know that. We say it, but, but we've got to keep reminding ourselves that this was a promise and he will never leave us or forsake us. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. See, there's that word. But I think here's another one of those times where God says, I can use this. Because if it hadn't been for this famine and that there was a need for food and Jacob then sends his sons to Egypt to get food, this is all a part of God's plan. And our, he said, bringing... Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his family, for his family and his father, all 75 of them. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. See, what, what I enjoy doing, and I hope you do too when you take the time to study, is that it's not just quick get the questions done and then I'm done, but go back and just, I mean, like I did, I started in Genesis 12 and I just kind of kept reading and through Genesis 45 and then, then through 50 and, and everything that Stephen was saying was exactly how it happened when it, and when it happened. And this is just nothing short of amazing how this man could be recalling all of this. And every one of those Jewish leaders were listening to Stephen. And they couldn't help but say, that's right, that's right, I know that. 
As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him, brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Isn't that amazing how God prepares us when we don't even know what's ahead? I mean, we, we can look and see the whole life of Moses, and, but when you look at the life of Moses, just to watch God's hand one step ahead all the time and like taking Moses by the hand and leading him along, but that's what he does to us. And he prepares us. I, I believe every day is a preparation for tomorrow. And already when Moses was being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, he was being trained so that he would be able to be the deliverer of God's people. Moses' own people. When Moses was 40, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. You know, that's beautiful, isn't it? That even though he was raised in Pharaoh's household and probably looked like, you know, pretty much dressed like, and, you know, that, but you know, he never lost his love for his heritage and for the fact he was a Jew. And he loved his fellow Israelites, and so he, he would visit them. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. Now, he's 80 years old here. And there's a burning bush, and we know that story so well, in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, 
the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now I want to stop there because I don't want you to miss this. I know that this is uh, this is one sermon in a continuity that maybe that maybe we shouldn't stop in, but I don't want you to miss in case you maybe are floundering or you think that God doesn't hear. I have heard their groaning. He always hears. I have come down to set them free. So he sees what's going on in our lives. He hears. He understands the pain. And at just the right time. But now look, i gotta, I got to point this out to you. It took 400 years. It took 400 years. That's why God's timing, we've got to trust his timing. Yes, he does see us in our pain. He does hear our cries. But he knows exactly when to come and set us free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. That's what God said to Moses. Your time in Midian is over. And now it's time for you to go back to Egypt. You are going to be used by me to set my people free. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So even though those two Israelites thought they were being sarcastic when they said to him, who made you ruler and judge, they had no idea, did they, that God had made Moses or he was making Moses into the deliverer. And then he says, this is the same Moses. And now I want you to see in verse 36, he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Just think, Moses, Moses was given that word of prophecy, a word of hope, that through this, through this, his line, through the, through, or through the Israelite line, God was sending a savior to redeem mankind. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. 
Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. Now you remember that time when Moses was up on, the, on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. And because he didn't come down for a long period of time, they went to Moses' brother Aaron and said, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it, held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. That is a really sad verse. And if you go back to that story, it is very sad. In fact, Stephen is even able to recall the words of Amos. Amos chapter 5, verses 25 through 27 this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the alt altar of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. I mean, right about now, don't you think that as Stephen is recalling not only the first five books of the Bible, but also the prophets like Amos? And they all know this, and they are seeing how this all has transpired. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it out with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. See, now we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant when the Israelites were making their way to the Promised Land. They carried with them and with strict instructions the Ark of the Covenant, which signified the dwelling of God. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But if it was Solomon, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. See, and that's that's a reminder that, you know, it's so easy to think, oh, maybe it was David, because David was the one that came up with it. It's time for us to build a real temple. And then Stephen said, Remember, but it wasn't David. God gave that privilege to Solomon. However, and this is so important that we see the however. The Most High does not live in houses made by men. 
As the prophet said, heaven is my home, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? We have learned, haven't we, that that it's not a, a, a building made with hands. That, that God's presence, I mean, we can go and worship in this building. But God has a new resonance. Because of Jesus, our, the new residence of God is within us, within, ev- within every one of us who comes to the cross and accepts Jesus as their personal Savior. Then we are gifted with God's Spirit, which is God Himself. I think sometimes people today put so much emphasis on a church building. The only place they think they can meet God is in this building. And then as soon as they leave that building, then God is absent. But you know what? God goes with you even when you leave a church building because God now resides in you. You know, I learned something about worship this week and I think we're so so trained to think that worship is when we come into the church building and we sing and we praise and and that is a, an important part of worship. But I learned something about worship and that is that our real worship to him is our obedience to his word. That's the best way we can glorify him and and show him how much he means to us and how much we value what he's done. So worship isn't just singing and lifting our hands. Worship is when he can see our hearts and we are willing to listen and obey what his word tells us to do. That's real worship. And that's how Stephen pretty much ended his sermon, or his talk, or his, I don't think he was trying to defend himself. He was just trying to say, how can you deny this? Remember when when um, the, the when Peter and John healed the lame man? It was it was like the leaders said, "We we can't deny it. The man's right there. He's walking." They might not liked it, but the fact is, here's the proof, folks. And I think this is what Stephen in his last, in his last, because I think by this time, and that's in verse 51, he is just going to pull out all the stops. 
But I was, I was kind of looking um, at what Jesus promised and that we really shouldn't be surprised that Stephen was able, even under this pressure, Because in John 14, I think Jesus wanted to make sure the apostles knew and that they would always be confident that they would know what to say, when to say it. And so he promised them in John 14 before he left this earth, before in the same chapter when the, the disciples knew that Jesus was leaving because Jesus had told them, and then they just went to kind of like a hysteria. And Jesus started the chapter by saying, don't get so troubled. And throughout the whole chapter, he promises them that he will send himself in a different form. And so listen to John 14, verse 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. See, what a promise. If you take the time to learn, I think that's why Solomon says in, in the Proverbs, in, in, in the Proverbs, And, and how we know that his word remains firm. And we're, and we're the psalmist in Psalm 119. We're also taught that, that his word and that, and that his name will never change. And that this counselor will help us recall thy word have I hid in my heart. And how you hide his word in your heart is by taking the time to let the Holy Spirit take his words off the page and put them into your heart. And there's the promise that at just the right time, because you were willing to be taught all things, he then will remind you of everything that you learned. And then he goes on in verse 27 of John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. I think this is what Stephen was experiencing to the letter. But what God promised to Stephen, he promises to you and me. Now in verse 51, I think Stephen by this time is saying, you know what, I, I can't prove it any, I can't tell you anymore. This is this is the whole story. In fact, I think you hear him, you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. 
He's getting, he's upset now, not because for himself. He's saying, you can't keep ignoring or you will pay eternal consequences. He is pretty sure it's making sense. You can't help but see that it's making sense. He was saying their language. The stories that they stand up in the synagogues all the time and preach. And Stephen is saying, and he's giving you another chance. But you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your father's. You will always resist the Holy Spirit. And then he, he asks this question, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. He is exposing their pride. You walk around acting like you have all the answers. You can quote all the verses. But all those words are just words until they go into your heart and you obey and you believe. You have received the law, but you are not obeying. And like I said before, obedience is such proof that we mean what we say. It's such evidence that's why our lives should be changing by the day. As more evidence of how the Holy Spirit is taking over our own self. And we are seeing the likeness of Jesus in us. And we're seeing less and less of ourselves. But they don't like to be exposed. No one likes to be exposed. But here was their chance I mean, wouldn't it have been so wonderful we'd see such a different ending to this story if they would have just said, it's so obvious. How could we have denied this for so long? How could we have been so stubborn and stiff-necked? It's right there. But the power of self because, you know, I say this every time, and I hope you never get sick of hearing this because I'm going to keep saying it. The day of our salvation is probably the hardest day of our life. It's probably the, the most, most exposing day. I mean, it's like, it's like a light comes in you, all of, a, all of a sudden you realize in and of yourself you are nothing. But see, this is exactly the way God set it up. That's why the first word in the sermons of John the Baptist and Jesus were repentance. 
we have to acknowledge ourselves for what we truly are. And see, they weren't willing to do that. That's why the day of our salvation is probably the most difficult day because we really have to see ourselves, and that's never pretty. However, it turns out to be the greatest day. And that's the way it's supposed to be because then your eyes have been opened to realize what the cross is there for. And what Jesus was willing to come and do for you. See, they wanted all the words. They wanted all the accolades. They wanted to be so smart and intellectual and educational. But they didn't have it. Isn't that something? You can, you can have all the answers and yet it's not real in your heart because you never truly obeyed and followed his terms. And you were willing to humble yourself. Oh, when they heard this, because right here was their chance. I looked at that space between verses 53 and 54. And I thought to myself, oh, this could be such a different chapter. After how the counselor, the Holy Spirit, gave Stephen just the right words at just the right time. And then to expose their pride and their stubbornness. But because they chose to ignore him again, When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I mean, you're talking about dignified, educated, religious leaders, and look at their behavior. They're gnashing their teeth. Now I went back and heard the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which we know refers to hell a person who is not willing to humbly come to the cross, the consequences are they will be thrown into hell or, or there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so when I saw that, I thought, yep, that's exactly, you're, you're gnashing your teeth at Stephen, but you're going to know what it's like to have the same kind of gnashing at you. Because it, they will experience just exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 8. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I couldn't help when I was writing these questions. Believe me, I could not help but ask you to show 
the difference. Look at the look at the response. Look at the did the difference between the the way Stephen handled the way versus the way these religious leaders handled the situation. I mean, you've got these leaders who are just gnashing their teeth, they're furious, they're out of control. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, the contrast between filled with self or filled with the Spirit is just unbelievable here. He looks up into heaven and he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, you know, we hear that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and here Stephen saw Jesus standing. Could it be that Jesus was giving him a standing ovation? Isn't that, isn't that just a wonderful thought? That Jesus is so, is so thrilled with Stephen's life and his testimony and his obedience that Jesus stands up. And I'm sure that his arms are open, a welcoming we're ready to welcome him into his presence. And Stephen says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears yelling at the top of their voices. And they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. I mean, what a sight that had been. What a mess. They covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. And they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I'm sure you couldn't help but think of the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen had the heart of Jesus. The Holy Spirit caused him to be so full of not only wisdom and faith and power, peace, but extraordinary grace, undeserved favor just like Jesus. I would say Stephen is one of the 
characters in God's word that I look at and I so want to mentor my life after him. And I, and I look at, at him and I think he's just a normal person like you and I. But look what extraordinary behavior can happen when the Holy Spirit is allowed to do his work. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep and he woke up in God's presence in the glory of his Savior. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. In the next couple chapters, I think another amazing quality of the book of Acts is to show us how God can change lives. He can take a life like Saul. Stand there and watch this innocent man and hear this innocent man ask for forgiveness. Don't hold the sin against them. Who is learning the Jewish laws and can quote it to the letter In fact, later Paul will say, I could do it blamelessly. And yet, because we know the story, we know and it should prove to us there is no life that God can't change if a soul is willing. And we will learn more and more about that in the coming chapters. So that's chapter 7. But I hope you never, never stop looking at the life of Stephen. And it's so, it was such a short life. You know, I, I just can't help but wonder sometimes, you know, when, when the Lord takes people home too young in my book. Not according to his, because he knows every day. He's numbered our days. But yet, in our minds, we always think that, oh, they left this earth way too early. And I've had a tendency to think about that with Stephen. Thinking how the Lord could use this man in the early beginnings of the churches. And yet I see as we go into chapter 8 next week, when are we going to learn that God knows what he's doing? And when are we going to learn to trust him? He's got to keep this gospel moving. And he knows what it's going to take to keep it moving so that you and I have it today. And really, another reason is that now after all this, there's no reason, there's no excuse that this gospel can't go to the Gentiles.
and we can be so grateful. So again, I reiterate, don't get discouraged in suffering. God can use this. And we've seen it all throughout the Old Testament that, that Stephen helped us and reminded us again. But we also can see, even in our own lives today, he knows what he's doing. When are we just going to let him do with us what needs to be done so that he can accomplish his purpose in every one of us? He certainly did that in Stephen. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this lesson, this reminder, this Old Testament lesson, the fulfillment of, of the law of Moses through Jesus, who became the sacrifice that every one of us needs. Father, may our goal, may we look at Stephen's life and may we want that so badly, but Lord, we know that it didn't come easy. It probably took much time for him to learn these lessons, but he was willing to give you the time. I'm sure it took much surrender of maybe what he wanted to do or what he wanted to accomplish to allow you to, to work in his life, to be able to use his life so that we can read about it today. Father, we praise you for loving us so much and taking us the way we are, but you certainly are not content to let us stay there. You want us to keep growing and learning and maturing and Lord, may we give you the time so that can be accomplished. We pray this all in our Savior's name. And because Jesus really does live, we can face tomorrow. And whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I'm sure Stephen would have loved that song. In Jesus' name, amen.